Well, it was, the, uh, it was the summer of either my eighth grade year, after eighth grade, or after ninth grade. So I guess the summer of either going into ninth grade or tenth grade. I, I can't quite remember what it was, but it was one of those early summers. They all kind of run together for me now. Um, I hate to say that, but our family and several others uh, from our church had gone to this thing that we called family camp. And some of you maybe grew up in places where they had church family camps. And we had one on the Northern California District Church of the Nazarene where all sorts of church folks got together for a whole week in the Santa Cruz Mountains at a campground. And we had family camp. And we had spiritual and physical refreshment and retreat. They had special speakers. They had gospel music and and all sorts of activities for kids and for the teens. And the youth had gathered. Mario, my youth pastor, was leading the week for the teens. And uh, it was a guy named Mark Bernhardt. Some of you may uh, have met Mark at our missions, Ignite Missions Conference that we had this past fall, our past winter up in Santa Maria. Mark was leading the youth ministry that week to the teens who had gathered at uh, family camp. And for this particular morning Bible study, he had invited a pastor on the district, a guy named Gary Harris. I remember him well. Uh, He was actually pastoring on this district when we moved here to start, but he was pastoring in Northern California when I was a teenager. Gary Harris, he'd invited him to give the lesson that morning for the teenagers. And, And we didn't know what Mark and Gary were up to. We teens thought it was just going to be a routine Bible study or a testimony. We were ready to kind of actually get, you know, onto the games and onto the pool and onto the hikes and whatever else. But we knew we needed Bible study, so we were here, but we didn't have any idea. We thought it was just going to be just another morning. Well, Mark, we found out, the plan was, Mark had worked it out, so he was going to interview Gary and ask him some basic questions about biblical faith about the Christian life, but they had worked it out in such a way that Gary then was going to answer these very basic questions about the biblical faith and the Christian life in ways that were quite far from what typical Orthodox faith would express. And so he began to talk in in just questions about who God is and the Father, the Son, the Spirit. He began to talk about how, well, Jesus isn't really God and he's kind of like God, but he's not really. And he began to talk about how church, well, it's kind of important, but not so much. And, and really what God wants for us is just that we be happy and we all get along and kind of this touchy-feely. And, and most of the teens in the room, including myself, had this kind of you know, look on our faces like, what is he talking about? But he was a pastor, and he was an older pastor on the district, and so we figured he was something, and, and really we just wanted to get to the pool. So just kind of do your thing, Pastor Gary, and we'll get on. All of us did that except for my friend Sean. Sean was going to be a senior in high school that year, and Sean was not content to let Pastor Gary speak his mind the way that he was. Sean began to question him about everything he was saying. Now, talk to me a little bit more about what you were saying about Jesus, and explain to me more about what God really wants for us in terms of just being happy. 
And Pastor Gary kind of started to squirm, but tried to explain himself, got himself deeper and deeper and farther away from Christian faith. And all the while, Sean is just, just driving in. And, and I don't remember a whole lot of the specifics of the conversation. What I do remember for sure is Sean looking right at Gary and saying, I don't know where you went to seminary, but you're way off, buddy. <laughs> and, and the rest of us in the room, we, we, we were shocked. I mean, there was a hush. How can you, how can you talk this way to, to Pastor Gary and Pastor Mark? And, and yet he did. And it was after he made that final statement that Pastor Mark interrupted the interview. And he said, good job, Sean. Good job. Just want to let everyone know here what we've been doing for the last 30 minutes. And, and I don't want to come down on you too hard, but I want you to let you know that Sean was the only one, apparently, that was willing to stand up for what he believed. And I wish that I would have been Sean. Man. <laughs> I wish that I could look back on that day in my life and say, I'm Sean, I'm with Sean. But I was James, and I was quiet, and I think I just wanted to go swimming, and I didn't really know what he was talking about. I was just in eighth grade, but I, I wish as I look back on it now that I had taken that stand. But, but I'm glad that I have this example of my friend, and, and I'll, I'll never forget that line. And now I've made that pledge to myself that when I'm in circumstances, when I'm in, when I'm in situations where, where, the, where the, the good news, the gospel, the message of the Bible is being distorted and, and changed and, and, and made into something that it isn't, then it, with grace and with kindness I've made that pledge, or sometimes with just forcefulness if need be, I, I will speak with truth. And I will stand up for what I know I, I believe. I will be Sean. <laughs> the reality is that in the world we live in, each of us faces challenges like this every day. Not only do people distort the Bible's teachings, they water them down. I mean, this happens all around us. The teachings of the Bible are watered down. We make them more palatable to our tastes. But there are all sorts of other belief systems just running rampant in our society and others that are, that are claiming to or aligning themselves with Christianity but not really or just kind of adding to our Christian faith but in so doing making it something completely different. And we're faced with these challenges and with the question of how we're going to respond. And more than ever, I believe, more than ever, friends, the people of God need to be paying attention we need to be listening carefully, not in a hurry to get on to what's next, not in a hurry to just move on to what's comfortable, but, but listening and asking the Holy Spirit to give us discernment, listening to the voices that are speaking into our hearts and into our lives that are shaping us when we know it and when we don't know it, paying attention to these things and discerning what's true and what's false. And then we need the courage and the boldness to stand up. Maybe it'll be physically it'll standing up to say something. Maybe it'll just be spiritually standing up against the, the, the forces, the, the tide that is coming against us in the world, to, to stand up and to be present, to be one on God's side. Well, in the book of 1 Kings, we're introduced to a man who did just this. 
First Kings, if you haven't read it lately, let me just give you a little bit of a background. It's a record of Israel's history, the people of God, from the last days of King David, he's wrapping up his ministry, to the eventual demise of the northern and southern kingdoms, Judah and, and Israel. The, the book begins with Israel still one nation. Solomon is, is ruling and the people are following God. But if you remember King Solomon, he starts to have some great success and great wealth and knowledge and wisdom. And, and he begins to take on wives and concubines and, and it kind of goes downhill him from there and for the nation as well. They turn to self-sufficiency. They become very proud people and Israel gets in trouble in a hurry. They turn their backs on God, this one who has blessed them, who has guided them, who has provided for them. They turn their backs on God and to themselves and become a divided kingdom. They're led and kings and second kings really is this, this procession through all the, the, the corrupt and dysfunctional kings that lead the nations of, of Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdom. There are a couple of good ones mixed in there among all the others, but for the most part, it's these corrupt and dysfunctional kings that have the people worshiping idols and ignoring the laws that God has given, him, given them. And perhaps the most dysfunctional of these kings is a guy named Ahab, King Ahab. Some of you know him. He's infamous and and uh, you've read about him. We get just a little bit of a taste of his leadership and just how far the people of God had fallen from their original trajectory from just a few short verses in 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but if you have your Bible and want to turn there, you can. 1 Kings chapter 16. Listen to this. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. So just to remind you, there's there's north and there's south. There's northern kingdom and there's southern kingdom, Judah and Israel. So you got one king there and another king here. So Ahab um, in Israel, Asa in Judah. He reigned in Samaria, which was the capital uh, of Israel, 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. Oh, you've heard that name before, and you know that's a bad sign, right? <laughs> the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal, or Baal, we'll call him. It's a little easier to say. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole, a further sign of, of idolatry. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. This is not a nice guy. This is not a good man, and he is having trouble. And as I read that again this week, I was just, I was just mesmerized by how he continually one-upped the bad kings of Israel. I just love the words that, that the writer uses to describe him. He, uh, he, even, he, did more, he did evil in the Lord's sight even more than any of the kings before him. Well, that's said actually about almost every king. When they come to them, they describe him. They said, he did more than the guy before him, all the other kings. Well, that's, so that's understandable. 
But then this one in verse 31, and as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. I mean, he went outside of the people of Israel to this kingdom that worshiped a foreign god, Baal, and he married the daughter of this king and began, not, if that wasn't enough, he began to lead the people of Israel into the worship of this foreign god. And this capper that was just there, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. I mean, provoking the anger of God. This is not a good thing. Well, um, God sent a man to confront King Ahab, and you can see here on the screen, it would become this prophet's primary job to reprove and correct Ahab. I mean, his whole ministry primarily is built around his relationship with this, this King Ahab, this bad, bad man. God sent a man who would be very bold, as I pray that we would be, in serving God in the face of some very formidable circumstances that we will run into in the weeks to come. A man who served God with his whole heart, a man who gave fully of himself, without regard, without fear, and without regard of consequence, of concern for what would happen to him. A man who, though he was flawed, without a doubt, would win many victories for God. God sent a man named Elijah. Over the next several weeks of this summer, we're going to spend some time with Elijah. Uh, for one, you may wonder how we decide what we're going to preach about on Sunday mornings. And I just have to be honest, this one is because I want to preach on Elijah. And, and particularly, I'm just interested in this guy. I've never preached on Elijah, never really studied him in depth, and he is a fascinating character. Another reason is, I mean, the stories, the narratives of Elijah's life are of blockbuster proportions. I mean, if you want a, like a summer blockbuster, just be here on Sunday mornings. Because Elijah's life and the narratives, the, his interaction with King Ahab and, and the, the people in Israel are, are huge, dramatic, epic, if we might say. And so I... It's, last summer we did Jonah, for those of you who were around back then, and, and this year it just seemed right and good to speak and to think about Elijah. You know that feeling you get when you're around important people? Um, I get it around most of you, but um, I, I got around like, like Dr. Busick, or if you, you find yourself in, a, in an airport and you're sitting next to a celebrity, or if there's like, you know, a, 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 a leader, either a political leader or religious leader that you really admire and, and you're near them and you just kind of have this little, oh, yes, this stirring in your soul. I sometimes get that with professional athletes if I find myself near them as well. And like, ah, look at this guy. Uh, this is what I get with Elijah. I just begin to think about him and read these stories and something begins to stir in my soul. When I grow up, I want to be Elijah. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of feeling that, that I get. In fact, when I was thinking about the title for this series, I, uh, I first came up with a few different words for this. Um, my first one was hero, the Elijah narratives. And I thought, nah, it's a little over the top. Um, how about uh, legend? 
he's a legend. But then I thought, no, maybe people will think that I'm saying he's not real, you know, because he's definitely a real guy. He's not just a legendary uh, person. So that was off the table. Uh, another one I thought of was, was just radical, just very radical, Elijah is. Um, then I just, stud was one that came to my mind. I was just going to go with just stud, the Elijah narratives. But that I didn't think would have the right ring either. So I, I came back to and ultimately settled on servant. Servant. The Elijah narrative. Because as I read these stories again and again and was so awe-inspired and taken aback and just ready to go, I realized that really what was at the center of Elijah's purpose and his desire in, in life was to serve God. There's a few places where he refers to this in his words, and it just comes out in everything that he does that all he longs for is to serve God, to be a servant of the Lord's. And I thought about us and learning and journeying with Elijah, and if there could be any greater goal, then I don't know what it would be, that we too would grow in our servanthood. Not just our service, not just our doing things, but in our sense of being completely available, totally usable by the Lord. Wouldn't it be great to have that said about us at the end of the day? All the things that could be written on your gravestone, servant of the Lord. Um, I'm also praying that we would um, learn not only about Elijah in these weeks, but that we would learn quite a bit more about the God that Elijah serves. Because at the end of the day, this, these are stories, they, they really should probably be called the God narratives because the Bible is about God, ultimately. Elijah is a, he's a supporting actor in this, in this, this drama. The, the, the story is ultimately about God. They're not only here to show us this example of Elijah, but primarily to teach us more about God, to help us reflect on God's power, to reflect on His goodness, his strength and his mercy. One person put it like this. He said, these stories are here to show us what kind of a God he is. Not just to record what he has done in history, but to show us what he can do. Even now and everywhere. These are historical narratives to be sure. They tell us information. These are FYI. They are for your information about what has happened in biblical history. But we should also understand that these are what we might call worship narratives, not only historical narratives, but what we might call worship narratives. Because as we read these stories, they are not only FYI, they are FYF for your formation. They are shaping us as the people of God. We can say all day long that God is good, that God is just, that God is faithful, that God is, is loving. But when we read these stories, we begin to understand His character, His life, His interaction, His power and his majesty. So as we read them, don't only be amazed and intrigued and fascinated by Elijah, but be in awe of the God that he serves. Turn with me or look on the screen. We're going to read from chapter 17 today. And I want to just share a couple of observations from this chapter that will get us going into the story of Elijah from this this first chapter in his story. I'm going to let you be seated, remain seated, because I'm going to read the whole chapter, and it might get a little long for some of us. So just listen in to this story of God. Chapter 17, 
verse 1. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Oh yeah, that's another reason I thought it would be interesting to preach on Elijah because it's all about drought. Not really. It is, but that's not really a good reason. Verse 2, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little cup, a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering, in fact, a few sticks to cook the last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you said, but make a little bread for me first. <laughs> then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick, he grew worse and worse, and finally he died. And she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God. Why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother, Look! He said, your son is alive. And then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Elijah appears abruptly on the scene. Hasn't been mentioned thus far in the book of Kings, and, and here he is, chapter 17, boom, verse 1, Elijah on the scene. And 
presumably he's in Samaria at the, the capital where King Ahab is, and he's, he's got an announcement to make. He's here, and he's ready to talk to the king out of nowhere. Elijah's name literally means Yahweh is God. Jah, the, the last part of his word, Jah, is the first, uh, the first, what do you call those? Syllable of, of Yahweh. And so the Lord, that's, that's Israel's God. That's, that's the Lord of the Bible, Yahweh. That's his name that Israel had given, that God had given them to know him by, Yahweh. So the last part of his name is Jah, the Lord. The first part, Eli, is God. His name literally says the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. And so as he appears before King Ahab, before he even says a word, he's introduced, he's already preaching a sermon to this king who has, by his actions, declared that Baal is God. Elijah has another thing coming. Even by the very introduction of his name, Elijah, Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. This is what he wants to announce right from the start, right there in verse 1. And he, be, he goes on to declare that there will be no dew or rain. There will be a drought. And he has some wonderful reasons for announcing this. It's, it's a shocking and a surprising announcement. We know what it's like. It's particularly not good for politicians. I mean, think about the politicians in our world right now. The California politicians are all in trouble. And it's really not their fault, but they're all in trouble because we're mad at them because we don't have enough water. And they're trying to get it to all the different places and the farmers and these people and we want that water and you want it but you get it and we don't and nobody wins. And so King Ahab is in this same position. He's like, this is a political threat to him. His one job as a king really to keep the people happy is to keep the economy going and, and without water, this is a tremendous source of energy, this will be problematic for him. And so to hear this word from Elijah is not a good one. But hidden Amidst this announcement are some very important, kind of between the lines, uh, news that Elijah wants to get across, both to Ahab and to everyone who is listening at this point. Elijah is making some other very important statements that I want us to be sure and catch this morning as well that set the stage, that are kind of summary statements for this entire series and for this entire section of Scripture, powerfully demonstrated and lived out in the rest of the narrative that we just read. So let's look again and listen to what he says. First of all, he wants to make it clear that, that these words, that the Lord is the God who lives. You can write that down if you want. The, Elijah wants us to be sure and know that the Lord is, the, is God. Not only the Lord is God, but the Lord is God who lives. Yahweh is the God who is alive. He says there in verse 1, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. wants to be sure that Ahab is hearing this. This Lord he represents is a living Lord. A living God. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. We've been singing about it since Easter. We've been living it out in the, in the afterglow of the Easter season where we celebrate the life of Jesus, his resurrection life. But before Jesus ever was raised to new life, this, this God, this, this triune God is one who is alive. And Elijah wants this to be very clearly 
proclaim to Ahab and anybody else in Israel who might be listening. Baal is the, count, is the Canaanite counterpart to Zeus, the sky god responsible for clouds and weather and fertility. This is what they looked to Baal for. And Elijah is announcing at the very beginning of his ministry that Baal is actually not controlling the weather because he's not actually a god. He's not alive. But there is a god who is alive, and it's Yahweh. And by the way, he can control the weather. And just to show that to you, we're going to have a drought for a few years. And we'll stop the drought, Elijah says, not when you say so and not when uh, Baal says so, but when the Lord asks me to say so. And he's announcing that this living God is active. He's on the move. Ahab with his in-laws. He may believe all the myths about Baal. He may be at Jezebel's feet hearing again the stories of how great Baal is. He may be participating with fervor in his worship rites, but Baal is no living God in the sense that Yahweh is. Can Baal guarantee rain? Can Baal guarantee whether the verdict is in? And the answer is no. About Yahweh, however, it can be said that He is the God in Israel who lives. Yahweh differs from all the other gods in that He actually acts and responds to people's needs. When we were in Russia, you've, some of you have heard me tell lots of stories about my trip to Russia when I was in college, but when I went to Russia in 1991, the, the Soviet Union had just kind of opened up, and it was our first, we were some of the first Americans to have been in that place in quite a while, and we would go to some of these small little villages around, and, and maybe you've heard me say this, but we would hear the whispers as we walked the street, Americanskis, Americanskis. And they would look at us with suspicious eyes. And we would look back at them with suspicious eyes because we'd been trained all our lives to hate each other, basically. We were, we were enemies. And yet we, were, we had come to, to share the good news, to share the gospel. And so they opened up their, in each of these villages, they opened up their, their town halls. And we got to go into these town halls and we got to sing uh, Christian hymns and songs that had been translated into Russian, and we got to act out pantomime uh, dramas that, that uh, were very moving and powerful, and we got to preach and have it be translated. We got to invite people to respond to the good news. We got to pass out Bibles, and it was just an amazing, amazing experience. One of the things I remember most, though, is that in each of these town halls that we went into, there was always a bust of linen. And linen is obviously a very important part of that Russian history, at least at that point he still was and still is to many. And so in each town hall we would go into, there would always be a bust of linen. And, and usually every city there would be a big statue of linen. And, and we, we took to um, placing little, if you don't, I mean, linen, a, a, just a voice of, of atheism and of communism and this whole... Uh, ungodly leadership, we, we took to placing Bibles next to his bust and taking pictures of them. But, but I, was, I was reminded, as we saw all these busts in all these towns and all these statues, that in Red Square, where we visited as well, there's a, another interesting uh, attraction. You can see all these different things around. But one of the main attractions in Red Square is... Lenin's tomb. 
And you can actually line up and go in, and we did walk by and look at Lennon's uh, shriveled corpse. Sorry for the graphic nature of that description, but I just wanted to communicate to you the very fact that he is dead. And this man that this country had given their allegiance to and still in their city halls were giving great allegiance to and, and propping him up as someone who had really made a difference and was continuing to make a difference was no longer living. And it reminds me of Baal and Yahweh and the importance of Elijah and of God's people still today proclaiming our God is alive. All the other gods that that might call for our attention in this world today, whether it be money or career or entertainment or, or uh, just power, whatever it might be that might yearn for our attention, all of these things ultimately will go the way of Lenin. They are the way of Baal. They are dead and non-living gods. Our God, Yahweh, though, is alive. He's the Lord of the weather. We see that. He's the Lord of creation. We see that. He tells, he tells Elijah, go to the brook. There'll be water there for you. Just wait. The ravens will bring you some bread and some meat. We're, we're hearing echoes of the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. God will bring them manna, water from the rock. Now he's bringing them, bringing Elijah water and bread and meat. He's the Lord of all the nations, even when the water runs out. There at the brook, do you see what God does? Well, go next door. Go to another nation. And I'll, I'll set you up there too because guess what? I'm the living Lord of all the nations. I'm not just the Lord of Israel as it turns out. I have some say over in Zarephath as well. In, in Sidon where they worship Baal, I have some say there too because, again, I'm the living Lord. He's even Lord over life and death as we see there at the end. We worship a living Lord today. All other things pass away. But Elijah wants us to be sure and know that the Lord is the God who lives. Elijah makes it clear. One more idea for you. It also in these opening verses, one other thing that comes out in this narrative and that will come out throughout these stories He slips it in almost as an aside in this verse, but it's there. The Lord is not only the God that lives, but the Lord is the God that he serves. And again, servant. But he says it again, as surely as the Lord, you see there in verse 1, the God of Israel lives, and little hyphens, the God I serve. He wants Ahab to be sure and know that this Yahweh is not only a living God, but he's one who has Elijah's complete allegiance. This week was my parents' 53rd, Becky and my, our parents' 53rd anniversary. They're not quite at 60, Crosby. They got a little work to go. But 53 isn't bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth celebrating at some level anyway. So uh, Kyle and I took them out for breakfast. And we went to a place that I've only been one time before, to the El Encanto. Am I even saying that right? El Encanto, perhaps. But it's, it's so fancy, I can't even pronounce the name. But, but we took my folks to this place. I'd been there once before, and I said, man, if I, I, you know, we'll just 
we didn't really get to celebrate our anniversary very much this year. It was about a month ago, so we'll just lump it all together and we'll go and have a big party at El Encanto. I am so uncomfortable in places like that. I mean, some of you are good at it. I've been with you, and you walk in, you're like, hey, what's up? Yeah, that's, uh-huh. I walk up, they start opening my door. I walk in, they start asking, they start calling me by my name because I've made a reservation. I, I mean, seriously, one guy greeted our car, another guy opened the car door, another guy actually parked the car. So three guys by the time we even got out of, before we even walked into the hotel. Another person greeted us, pointed us to the restaurant. Another person welcomed us there, got another person to actually seat us. So there's six. Are you with me? Then, then we were seated. Another person came and moved the umbrellas. Another person poured the water. Another person uh, took our order. Another person brought the coffee. Another person actually brought the orders. I don't know. We're up 10 plus. And, and I don't know. They were kind of interchangeable. Maybe some, they popped back. But I, they seemed like different people. They just kept coming in waves, in waves. More, someone else. It's like, that's enough. It was, but it was good. And, and I can't remember his name, but he was the main waiter who, who began to take care of us. And I had made a reservation and told them that it was my parents' anniversary. So he was just over the top. I mean, he was on just on. I mean, it was amazing, the service and the care that he gave to my mom and dad. And they're kind of awkward as well, so we weren't quite sure what to do with all of ourselves, but he just kept taking care of us and guiding us and helping us know what to order and giving us, you know, drinks, non-alcoholic for my folks and, uh, and for us. But uh, it was... It was uh, <laughs> explaining to us what a Bellini is, because we're so, you know, we're so unaware. Uh, but it was, it was uh, so beautiful, and, and any change or anything that needed to happen, he just was, was on the job. It was, it was amazing service, is what I'm getting at. And, and as I began later in the week to kind of reflect on the service that we had received in that moment and began to think about the level of my own service to the Lord, I, I wondered if they even can compare. Just the, the level of, of giving, and sure, they're looking for a tip and getting paid for it, but, but for us to be able to give of ourselves in service to our Lord as we were served in that day. We see it in Elijah, in the confident trust and, that he places in God. He says to the widow, remember, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm hungry, you're hungry, we're thirsty. Go ahead and make some bread. Because I've got this confidence that there will always be enough flour and there will always be enough oil in the containers to make more bread. And serve the Lord with this confidence, this, this confident trust in God. We can see it in Elijah's unreserved obedience. I love this. The scholars talk about this command and compliance formula that we read in, in these, these verses uh, there at the very beginning. Where maybe you noticed it as I read, God says something very specific and then the writer reports Elijah as doing exactly what God said. 
and, and you know, we, could, we could read those. He says, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook. And he says, go to and live in the village of Zarephath. So he went to Zarephath. He served him by this unreserved obedience. God, you, say me, you tell me to do something, you say it, I will do it. This was Elijah's mode of living. This is the way he served God. Not only by his, his confident trust in who God was and what he was doing, but by this unreserved obedience. We see it perhaps most in Elijah's prevailing prayer. Um, Elijah is quite a famous guy, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. I think in Sunday school even this morning, you were talking about the transfiguration. Is that correct? At least part of it. And uh, Elijah was there with Moses, these two great prophets of the Old Testament, to support and strengthen and encourage Jesus. And later in the book of James, Elijah is referred to as well. And some of you remember this, talking about prayer. And, and James speaks of Elijah as this this wonderful, effective prayer warrior. He'd, we're told there in James that actually he had been praying for the drought before it actually is reported as happening in, in Kings. He was, he was unwilling to let the status quo remain, in other words. Elijah was this person of powerful and prevailing prayer. And we see it again when the widow's son dies. She blames Elijah Ultimately, she blames God, and, and initially in his prayer, even Elijah blames God. Did you notice that? Why did you kill this woman's son? And, you know, in moments of crisis, everyone's theology gets a little bit twisted from time to time. I think Elijah knew that God didn't really kill this woman's son, but he, now it's time to pray. And so he prays. And he prays three times, and he, he adds to it this physical act uh, with this, over this young woman, this woman's son, and he prays and prays and prays, and God responds in prayer. Just as, this is so intriguing, just as God had instructed before, and Elijah had responded in obedience, so it now seems that Elijah is instructing <laughs> And God is responding. Maybe not in obedience, but in love and in grace and in power to the prayers of his people. We're invited to pray, friends, just as we did for Silva earlier today. We're invited to continue to pray. We're invited to pray that, that, that people around us, including ourselves, would find life not only physically, but that we would find life amidst the death that so many hundreds of deaths that so many people die all around us every day, that God can and that he would bring life into those places. This will not be the last time, mark it, my friends, that we see Elijah crying out to God in prayer, serving him. The Lord is the God who we serve through our confident trust, our unreserved obedience, our prevailing prayer. Yahweh is the Lord who lives. Proclaim it. Believe it. Hold on to it. Even this week, 
as you sense yourself perhaps wondering, does anybody know? Does anybody care? There is one. Yahweh is the Lord whom we serve. We place ourselves at His beck and call, at His feet, ready to respond. Remember that this week as you sense the inclination, the the nudge, the guidance, the direction, believing that the Lord is at work, bringing you to where He would have you to be and bringing about His good purposes. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for a man like Elijah who would have the courage to tell a different story. In in the face of a, a cultural and political story that was being told that that, the, that that Yahweh was on the retreat, that Yahweh had seen his better days, that there was a new and better thing happening, that there were new opportunities to be had, that Elijah had the courage to tell a different story. story that, that actually Yahweh is alive and well. That, that actually this, this God who is alive and well demands and empowers our service for Him. That actually this Lord is moving and is bringing life to all who would come under His authority. Thank you that Elijah had the courage to tell a different story. God, I pray for us today. I pray for myself. pray for these people that are here in this place that we would have the courage to live into this story. That we would not be people who are defined by the stories that our culture is telling us, that we would not be people who are defined by stories of power and possessions and notoriety, that we would be people instead who are shaped by this story of a living God who cares for us, who knows our every need, who is able to provide for us at our lowest and most desolate moment, who is able to lead us and guide us into greater provision, who is able to bring life to us and to those around us, even in the face of death. Help us to live into that story of a living God. Help us to live into that story of availing our lives to this God for your glory, for your purposes for your honor, oh God. God, help us to be people who live into the Elijah story. And as we enter into this narrative through these weeks, God, I pray that we would become people of of greater obedience, of greater dependence, of greater prayer. I pray that we would be formed as disciples, that we would be 
that would be grown as followers of yours, O oh God, and that you would shape us into an Elijah-shaped church body. Give us your grace and give us your strength. We praise you and we love you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.